It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Jeff is the editor-in-chief of Visual Capitalist, frequently featured on Business Insider, Forbes, CNBC, MarketWatch, The Huffington Post, and the World Economic Forum. The staggering 2.5 exabytes of data is generated every day, making our world increasingly difficult to understand. By exposing the bigger picture through data-driven infographics, Visual capitalists help readers cut through that clutter and simplify a complex world. I spoke to Jeff about his new book, Signals, the 27 trends defining the future of the global economy. The book draws on the oceans of data we're all surrounded by to extract insights about where the world is headed, from society and demographics to tech innovation. In today's episode, we focus on the socioeconomic trends governing the near 8 billion people on this planet. Enjoy. Welcome, Jeff. It's great to have you on the show. So how's your week been so far? What have you been up to? Yeah, no, it's been great. Um, just catching up. We were, in, uh, we were actually in Mexico for 10 days and then in New York next week. So it's a bit of a, a grind this week to try and catch up and also prepare for, for next week. But yeah, all is well. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so uh, today the focus of the interview will, will of course be your new book, Signals, uh, The 27 Trends Defining the Future of the Global Economy. Um, so I want to dig into that briefly just to kind of introduce the subject matter to the listeners. And then we'll circle back. We'll cover exactly kind of who visual capitalists are for anyone that doesn't know. And then we'll dig into, uh, dig into the book and some of the themes within it. Um, so amongst those 27 trends that you've established in, in the work that you've done for the book, I just wonder whether there was any kind of overarching trends or mega trends even that help group them together, just to make it a little bit less abstract for the listeners. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because, you know, I don't think that we set off on the mission of saying, hey, we're only going to cover or we're going to focus in on these specific topics or anything like that. Um, but really, when you, you know, when you take all of the different data sets that we were looking at and really categorize them by, you know, where is there going to be a clear impact? You know, it's something that is hard to debate. You know, when you start going through those, you start to notice these trends amongst what you have. And so an obvious one is something like technology, where you can see, you know, out of the 27 trends that we have, probably six or seven of them are directly related to technology, but probably 10 to 15 of them are indirectly related to technology because it's such a, um, you know, it, it creates so much acceleration in, in how fast things change. But yeah, when you break it down, we, we ended up categorizing into seven different categories. Um, we have obviously technology as one of them, and we also have another uh, topic that's related to that, which is just the digital world. Um, we have uh, the geopolitical realm. We have uh, demographics and society. Um, we have the financial aspect of things as well. We also have environment, which is uh, an area that is uh, you know, front and center today as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And in reading the book, it just sort of struck me how much data you've got there. I mean, the volume of data that you're trying to sift through and make sense of is, is pretty colossal. But 
where, where do you get all that data from or, or kind of more pertinently, how do you make sure, I guess, the sources of the data are, are credible and accurate? So we've been doing this for a while now. So we have a variety of sources that we go back to from time to time. It, it helps to have a, you know, sort of a map of, of where you can get data from. For the most part, though, we typically divide things into a couple of main categories for where we source data. So the first one is government and you know, sort of international sources. So that would include things like the World Bank or the IMF or you know, other, um, other sources like that that your listeners would probably be aware of. I mean, they have massive databases with all kinds of data in them. They, they publish reports each year where they do deep dives on some of these topics as well. Um, so they're obviously a great resource. They're just... You know, there's just so much there that you have to be able to know what you're looking for, or you have to be able to uh, to sift through it. Um, the second really good source that we use a lot is from different consulting and like management consulting and and the big four accountants and groups like that. You know, if you're getting something from a McKinsey or if you're getting it from a PwC, um, usually they have uh, you know very good people working on it. Um, they tend not to be too biased, at least in in our opinion, from what we've seen. Um, and they tend to be really robust data sets. Mm. Um, and then, of course, there's you know think tanks and things like that too. Uh, they they tend to be a little bit trickier because they tend to have a political view. So, and we're always trying to to try to keep things pretty neutral and to look at data and and to say, yeah, I think that this is um, you know this has no spin applied to it or, or or things like that. So there's a bunch of sort of meta things that you have to keep in mind. But those two sources are really they, they drive the bulk of the work. Yeah, fantastic. So. I think now would be a good juncture to sort of introduce visual capitalists to anyone that isn't uh, aware of the work that you do. So perhaps you could sum up the publisher's sort of mission statement. What's your main aim? So our mission is to make data more accessible to people. And so we do this by, um, by using data visualization and data storytelling. So, you know, obviously there's tons of data out there um, and um, it's quite a, as we cover in signals, it's quite a bewildering universe to the, the average person. You know, there's data that conflicts with one another. There's, there's data that is skewed. There's data that is biased uh, or presented in a biased way. Um, and there's just lots of it. So what Visual Capitalist tries to do is we try to take the trends and the things that we think are important. We try to visualize them in a way that's memorable and shareable and uh, that people can look at and hopefully through that uh, visual aspect, which about 65% of people are visual learners, uh, to be able to look at something and get something out of it um, is really the key. And, um, and so the other thing that we think a lot about with, with all of this as well is, you know, it's not only about making you know, data more accessible to people, but it, it's also about across the world, how can everybody have access to this data? How can everybody be able to know the things that we know and, and take for granted. Um, you know, there's people in in countries around the world that um, that might not have the same literacy with data. They might not have the same access to it. And so, one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to you know evangelize um, a the way that we are presenting the data, but also b um, you know how can we make it as uh, accessible as possible and get out to as many people. Yeah, absolutely, and it certainly comes across on your website. Um, I think then the follow-up question I've got is is more in relation to to signals, which is obviously the subject of the book, but I think relevant to, to kind of the broader work that you do. How or why then, more than ever, is it is it so difficult to discern, you know, proper informative signals that give an investor or just anyone value versus noise? How do we separate signals from noise? 
So I, I think that that's obviously a bit of a personal question, depending on who the person is and what they're after. For us, what we were looking at was, you know, in terms of creating a book that can serve as a foundation for almost anybody in a professional pursuit or or an investor with their portfolio. You know, what are the things that um, that are not up for debate in terms of how the world is changing? Um, That was really the lens that we were looking through. Um, You know, how can you show something that is occurring right now and that's going to continue to occur that you need to know, but also that, again, it doesn't have a, um, it's not a hot take. It's not a prediction. It's not our opinion that, you know, this trend is going to be big. It's something that's clear through the data that is happening and it's going to continue to happen. And this is going to affect the world. And if you are allocating capital, if you are trying to move to your dream job in 10 years, if you are trying to go somewhere, this is something that you need to know and, and something that is going to impact you. And so that is the lens that we were looking through. And, and as we were evaluating the different data sets, I mean, of course, you find all kinds of uh, really cool trends and, uh, and super interesting things happening. But again, the lens that we're looking through is, is this going to impact people? Is this something that is you know, not up for debate? And to be honest, there are a lot of things that are up for debate, right? I mean, if you look at any uh, set of data, there's always a, a counterexample or there's always you know, some other uh, argument to be made. And that's what makes markets. So that's great, right? But at the same time, it helps to have friends that are, are changing the world. And now I have a better understanding. And, and now you can start to make those judgment calls of what areas you want to dive deeper into, or what areas maybe that you you can find some disagreement with, or or you can look at in a different way, or or, or have that sort of um, you know a contrarian view on? Yeah. Okay. So wh- why is that difficult now more than ever? You know, what's contributing to that noise? Who are the kind of key perpetrators to that noise, as it were? Right. So why is there so much noise out there? For me, the um, the biggest thing data is actually, the amount of data that exists is, is doubling every two to three years. Um, so that's, you know, some of that's going to be like a random sensor picking up data somewhere, but also that's, that's data that's published, data that's available to people and resources that people are looking at. It's different opinions. And of course, the barriers to entry for creating data are lower than ever, right? Anybody can go in and publish information. Um, they can publish their take, they can set data. So you have different data sources, you have different analyses of these, uh, of these sources uh, that lead to different opinions. And, and so the, the world is just much more uh, complicated and complex now, where you have so many different opinions uh, filtering in on, on what is meaningful. Um, I, I think that these are really the biggest factors, but also when you look at this stuff, there's only just so much that we can handle mentally, right? Uh, humans have evolved in, in a certain way uh, in a very linear way. And when you have mountains and mountains of data growing exponentially and you're hit from every angle with all of these uh, data points, it makes it harder to have resolve sometimes because you have um, analysis paralysis where you have just too much data and you can't form an opinion on it. Or you have something that you feel like, for example, you know, from an investing point of view, maybe you have something that you have some conviction about, but then you start to see all these different data sources that are conflicting with your point of view 
because there just is that much more data out there. And so it actually makes it harder to make decisions a lot of the time, even though data is supposed to be our friend, it's supposed to be something that helps us make better decisions. I just find that it it also can be very muddying or sometimes you're getting the completely inverse point of view from data. So it really is something, it's a tool that you have to know how to use and a tool that you have to be able to make the most of. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. And no doubt that's something our listeners will have uh, contended with over the past few years, for sure. Um, So let's move on then to defining, I guess, what a signal is, you know, how exactly you define a signal and determine whether something is actually worth paying attention to. Is there kind of a top level answer you can give me as to as to how you determine that? Yes. So I think the the most important thing is, is obviously it's something that is going to have a wide ranging effect on society and markets as a whole. Of course, there are many smaller, you know, tinier signals that we didn't include in the book that are much more concentrated in one area or uh, that relates to some, um, you know, very niche market or something like that. But in the book, we tried to cover the ones that are going to have wide ranging impacts, you know, all over the world that are, that are going to be rippling in a number of different sectors and, um, and that you will notice the impact of um, regardless of what your discipline is and, and where you focus, you know, something like an aging population or interest rates or uh, globalization, these are all things that relate, you know, sort of to everything. Um, so, so that's really the, the first criteria. The second criteria is we wanted to focus in on things that have been happening for a notable amount of time and numerous sources are predicting will continue to happen uh, along that same trend. Um, so when we put together the book, you know, something like cryptocurrency, we would have loved to include in the book, but we didn't see enough uh, because it's so up and down yeah. and it's so um, it's such a tricky thing to encapsulate in one trend. It's something that didn't meet that criteria, even though I think it's super interesting and we're, um, you know, we've covered it for a long time. Um, it didn't meet that criteria in the book. So really something that's been happening for a long time and will continue to happen is the next thing. And then the third thing is we were looking at, um, we, we have a formula throughout the book, which I, I think we're, we'll be going into, but you know, we're trying to show not only how that signal formed, but also you know, what its impacts are going to be. So we wanted to be able to cover different impacts that uh, that, that signal would be leading towards. And, and not that that's a comprehensive thing, but it allows you to point out some specific examples of, hey, here's this, this signal in practice and, and a couple areas where you're starting to see um, the big impact it will have. Uh, and, and that can help, uh, that helps provide some tangible aspect to the reader such that they can look at this, you know, maybe very um, macro type signal and they can start to see what the actual impacts are going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So I guess once you've identified the signals that you want to look at, there's a bit of a job to work out which ones uh, are going to have the most socioeconomic impact, I suppose. How, how, do you, how do you gauge that? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, you know, what is the, what areas does this affect, right? Um, so, so obviously, uh, when, you, when you're looking at something that's very niche, it's going to probably impact one or two areas of society. Um, and then when you're looking at something that has more wide ranging impact, you can say it starts to become pretty clear right away, right? Like this is going to not only impact financial markets, but it's also going to impact how 
um, you know, how the makeup of society is. Uh, it's also going to impact how, um, you know, business decision makers need to make decisions. And you start to see across the board, okay, this is something that is going to be wide ranging and it's going to affect how people do business and, and how markets work all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really trying to just see, um, you know, is something wide ranging enough that it could be covered in the book or is this, is it something that is going to be very concentrated? And that doesn't mean it's not important. It just means that it's important to fewer people. Right. And so there, therefore it doesn't fall within the scope of the book. Got it. And within the book, you kind of reference a signal to noise ratio. So to give, I guess, a top line indicator of how impactful that signal is versus the noise out there. I think um, one of the, the themes I looked at was, you know, five, uh, which was the highest number available, which meant to me that it was obviously very impactful. But perhaps you could explain a little bit more about what that means. Yeah, so we have two measures that we've included uh, for each signal in the book. And um, to be very clear, like while the, the book is very quantitative, uh, built throughout, uh, and there's you know, obviously tons of data, these two measures were our own um, sort of arbitrary measures, and they they were done in a way that I that I think you know we can't say is as uh, quantitative as the rest of the book. It was a bit more of a a feel of like okay, we're looking at something like um, the proliferation of five G. The two things that we looked at is a what is the signal uh, range like what what is the strength and and how wide ranging is this impact going to be. Um, so 5G, you think about what that is going to affect. Okay, well, that's going to be you know, faster internet speeds uh, in mobile in like a really dramatic way all around the world, which is going to impact you know, all of these different areas. So, okay, so you get a sense of, of what that is. But then the, the one that you referenced, which is signal to noise, this is a measure that we had because you know, data out there on, on these things is not perfect. And sometimes you find that there are, as we were talking about before, um, conflicting opinions on things, or there are uh, different data sets that might um, that might you know not align with the signal. And so, in some situations, you know, we gave a score of of five, as as you mentioned, where we're like, okay, I haven't seen anything that contradicts this at all. Like this is happening; it's guaranteed, right? And then in other ones, you you think, okay, almost everything that we've seen. And, and obviously, this is a criteria for the book, so we um, met a minimum amount of uh, signal to noise. But also, you look at it and you say, maybe there's some room here for, um, you know, maybe we're. Uh, it's not as clear that this signal is going to continue happening in the future because there are some things that are there are some signs or some early uh, data that it, that are pointing in other ways, or maybe it's going to go, you know, more sideways than it's going to go. Uh, straighten up or something like that. So we want to, um, you know, we want to share that uncertainty with people because at the end of the day, I mean, none of this stuff is um, is a guarantee, right? As we saw, we published the book during the, uh, or like we started publishing the book during the uh, start of the pandemic, basically. That's when we started researching for it. So at that time, nothing was guaranteed, right? We were we were trying to figure out the um, the signals at the same time as you know no one knew what was what was happening. So it was um, it was an interesting exercise to go through. And uh, and as I say, like you know, I, I think that there's very good data backing up all of these signals. But at the same time, I think it's intellectually dishonest to say that you know all of these things are happening for sure. 
uh, and there's no counter evidence to some of them. Uh, and so that's what we tried to, to represent with the signal to noise ratio. Okay, perfect. Well, I think that's a good juncture then to get it, start getting into at least one of the seven sort of overarching themes uh, within the book. Um, I thought I'd go with the society and demographics theme, just given its sort of pervasiveness and hopefully its ability to set the context for the rest of the book. Um, what then, first of all, or kind of where do you start trying to make sense of trends governing the societal and demographical shifts of the near 8 billion people on this planet. I was just interested to, to kind of get uh, an insight into your kind of thought process and mindset about how you tackle such a colossal task. Well, yeah, I, I mean, as the quote goes, right, demographics is destiny. And so this is something that when you're looking at macro factors that, um, that really impact everything, whether it's markets or business or society or culture or any of these things. I mean, demographics, um, there, there isn't a better example than, uh, than that, right? So what we were thinking of when we, when we looked at it are, um, from a super macro point of view, um, how is society made up? And not in terms of um, more subjective things, but like, where do people live? How are they living? Uh, what age are people? What are the, the trends of those ages? You know, are they living longer or shorter? What is the distribution of, of those people? And, and why does that matter? Um, so basically looking at any factors that derive from, you know, how people are living and, and how that's changing. And obviously, if you have a, a trend that is affecting 8 billion people and, and they're, you know, for example, um, all getting wealthier or all getting uh, older or they're, you know, any of these, these things, um, that's going to have a, a giant ripple effect across markets and the economy. And, uh, and these are the things that are, are really worth knowing and, and worth understanding uh, in a deeper way. And so, yeah, we were looking at um, that really big picture of and of the world as a whole, not a, of uh, individual countries or, or continents as much. Like we wanted to look at it globally and, uh, and in the most macro lens possible. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. It, you know, it felt global rather than sort of US centric, uh, which obviously a lot of these kind of reports and things tend to tend to feel. So one of the sub themes within society and demographics was longevity. So an aging global population. So let's dig into that first. So after all, I mean, we're an investing podcast. And in terms of longevity, it's an investment theme that I think has been targeted by a lot of sort of fund houses and ETF providers uh, along the way. There are investment products that offer exposure to this sort of thing. But I think what a lot of investors listening in will want to know is how do you suppose people might gain investment exposure to this longevity trend? You know, for example, you see investors pouring capital into healthcare, elderly care, biotechnology, pharma, that sort of stuff. I think of this from two different angles. I think of, yes, there are obviously different areas that I think are super interesting from an investment angle. Uh, if you think about uh, 65 plus population, that's going to be more than doubling over the next 30 years. Um, if, if you think of people in that demographic, you know, they're, they're going to be wanting the same, same things that, um, you know, they're getting wealthier. Uh, they're going to be wanting uh, the same level of care or better that people are getting today. Um, and but there's going to be way more money there, right? Uh, and, and there's going to continue to be way more money there. So 
Um, when you look at things like advances that you can make through, as you mentioned, things like biotech and, and things like that, I mean, there's going to be a huge market there that didn't necessarily exist before. There was that, uh, that population before, but it was uh, in dollar terms and number of people, it was much smaller. Uh, now it's going to be much more mainstream. Uh, and so you know, one, one of the descriptions of this is the, um, is the silver economy. Uh, so it, it's something that's expected to be, you know, $15 trillion, all of the care and anything else that we're, we're doing for this, this segment. But I also think about the risks, like, um, as an investor, obviously you have to be aware of where the opportunities are, but you also have to be aware of, of the risks. And this is a very, um, you know, this particular signal factors into everything and an aging population. And when you have fewer young people, uh, that are able to um, support that population, that has a huge ripple effect as well. So I'd, I would encourage people not to only think about things in terms of the opportunities that are, are presented from these signals in the book, but also what are the potential risks for my portfolio based on uh, you know, something like this, right? If the world is, is getting older and that's something that we can't stop uh, and we know is going to continue to happen and we know that there's going to be you know, fewer younger people supporting them, what does that mean for um, for the market, right? That obviously translates in a bunch of different ways, but um, but certainly there are a bunch of risks there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And probably not a point that gets brought up enough. It's a really good point, I think. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. So the next sub-theme I want to talk about is urban evolution. Um, this, I guess, digs into sort of that max exodus that we're seeing across the globe, really, from rural areas, both uh, kind of in surrounding sort of areas around cities, but further out as well, coming into the cities. Uh, and that seems to be taking place across the globe, as I say. Why, first of all, is that? Why, why are people moving kind of from agricultural-based lives into uh, city life? Yeah, so for the same reason that um, that I live in a city or that you, I'm guessing, most likely are living in a city. Everybody else wants to do the same, right? Um, everybody in Africa or India or China, they are, you know, they want to go and uh, be with a bunch of like-minded people. They want to be where the action is. They want the jobs. They want the, the potential earning uh, that is occurring there. And so uh, this is another one of these um, these trends that are have been occurring for a really long time. I mean, in particular, this trend has been occurring since the agricultural revolution. And, um, you know, as soon as we were able to uh, have better farming outputs for fewer inputs, you know, people realized that we didn't need to spend all day tending the fields and they started to do other things. And in cities is where um, wealth creation happens. It's estimated that about 80% of global GDP comes from cities you know, when you compare that to the amount of population that's living in cities, which is actually less, it's about, uh, it's about 56% right now globally, uh, you see that that's, you know, that's where the money is and, th- and that's where the opportunity lies. So you know, everybody wants to be a part of that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And that trend, I guess, is, is quickening in terms of momentum, it seems, and that's something that's referenced in the book. So what's that urban to rural dispersion going to look like, you know, if we look ahead to 2050, for example, is that is that divergence going to be even greater? Right. So, um, so today it's 56% of the population lives in urban areas. And when you go to 2050, I think we're getting up to about 70% of the population. 
Um, and I think when they projected out, um, I'm not 100% sure on, on this exact point, but it's, it's looking closer to 80% by the end of the century. So, you know, that's a lot of people living in very concentrated areas. When you think about the global population in 2050 or 2100, um, you know, estimates right now are, are saying that there's going to be, you know, uh, 10 to 11 billion people um, at those times. That's a lot of population living in cities. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess with that, the, the areas that those people are going to live in will need to grow. Um, but the, the book actually references a kind of new cohort uh, of cities that are to replace today's largest cities. Um, so first of all, just, just for people that obviously haven't read the book, w- which cities are likely to be in that new cohort? Is it ones that we wouldn't necessarily expect, for example, and what, and what regions are they likely to come from? Yeah, so the, the cities of tomorrow are definitely not the cities of today. Um, when, you think of, when you think of big cities today, you think of places like um, Tokyo or New York or, uh, or London. But also, if you've, if you've been to any of those places, you also realize that those, those places don't necessarily have um, the momentum or ability to expand um, to the size that some of these new cities are expected to, to go to. So um, we, we found a couple of really interesting data sets around this, but the very short answer is that if you're looking at the top 20 cities in, in either 2050 or going forward to something like 2100, it's expected that pretty much all of the world's biggest cities are going to be in Africa and India. Um, none of them are going to be in uh, North America or Europe. None of them are going to be in China, which is also really interesting, um, which that, that actually ties into China's demographics, right? Which is that you, they had the one child policy and, and so on. And so China's overall population is actually expected to start decreasing uh, relatively soon. But India and Africa um, are, are really where those cities are going to be. And it's going to be places like uh, Kinshasa or uh, Lagos. And, uh, and some of these are expected to be, um, you know, there, there are projections out there that have them becoming 80 to 90 million people cities by the end of the century, which um, in our conventional lens of like what you and I think of as a city seems insane. But also these places have massive momentum. There's already... Uh, there's already 200 million people in Nigeria, for example, and they all want to be in Lagos. You know, what's, and the growth rate of the population there is high enough that, you know, what's, what's stopping them? Um, there's going to be that continual momentum for the next while. So it's a super interesting topic. Yeah, really interesting. And I guess I want to link it briefly to uh, climate change. I mean, this increased urbanization is likely, obviously, to heap extra pressure on an already deteriorating climate, where are we seeing that the most? I remember reading in the book there were kind of significant changes to certain climates within certain regions already as a result of this trend. The most notable example is, uh, is Jakarta in Indonesia, um, which is right now, is, I think it's like sinking 10 inches. Um, I'm not sure if it's every year or if it's, if it's every, uh, every so, so many periods, but it's, um, it's obviously a giant city. Uh, and, and right now they're in the process of, of relocating the capital to somewhere else because they, they're realizing that um, this is not something that's going to be sustainable. So where we build these cities and how we build them and, um, and how we think about doing this is going to be really important, uh, especially when you, when you think of the size and the sheer scope of some of these cities, right? You don't want to make a mistake in where you place a 90 million person city. And obviously, even the smallest uh, mistake there or, or the smallest um, you know, 
disaster or something like that can be extremely impactful. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, a couple more questions on this, and then we'll move on to our final sub theme. Uh, the first one being, of course, we're an investment podcast, so I want to try and link it back to kind of the investment exposure that people might try and kind of gain from this. And I guess one not negative, at least neutral, and, and maybe even positive trend uh, kind of within this theme is smart cities. So the creation of smarter connected cities and the uh, necessary infrastructure that would go with the construction of those cities. Uh, and a lot, again, of fund houses, ETF houses have built products to give retail and uh, institutional investors exposure to that sort of thing. How compelling, in your opinion, is the kind of smartness or the increased connectivity of cities uh, as an investment trend to you? As a long-term trend, I I think it's extremely valid. Um, The amount of, well, as we mentioned, cities are going to become even more important than they are today, and they're going to continue to be the the centers of wealth. And there's going to be more and more data in each city that's starting to be created and that can be taken advantage of. Um, and that cities will, they will spend money on these things and, and they will want to have them. And, uh, and once they're all working together, it can create a big impact. I think the challenge is with a lot of these things is that it takes time. It's not something that can be done, uh, done overnight. And it's obviously municipal governments and, and sometimes um, higher level either state or federal governments are also uh, involved in these types of exercises. And so infrastructure takes time. And so over a long time horizon, I I mean, I think it's super interesting. It's just not something that, um, well, I mean, we've been hearing about smart cities for years, but, you know, have we, have we necessarily seen the, uh, the action and and results over that period of time? Like, I'm, I'm not sure of that. I think there are some there are some examples of, of some emerging smart cities out there, but I, I don't think there's anything where you go there and you're like, oh, wow, like everything is um, automated and, and they're taking data from everything to make better decisions. And uh, it's clearly you know, generating billions of dollars of extra output or something like that. So I think there's still a ways to go. Yeah, completely agree. So finally, the book talks about the rise of the middle class, I guess. And, and by that, we mean, you know, fewer people living in poverty than ever before, the book references at least. So uh, was there a tipping point at which global sort of socioeconomic disparity started to, to equalize? And if so, what, what trends were inciting that, that equalization? So this is a really interesting topic because before I get into your question, I think it's also worth pointing out that there is a, um, a trend that seems like it's the opposite of this trend that we also cover in the book, which is the rise of inequality within countries. Um, And I find that two are super um, interesting combined because you have within a country, you have increasing inequality. In most developed countries, this is something that's occurring. Um, But then when you look outside of that individual country, globally, the population is becoming richer and they're coming out of poverty and the global middle class is going to be growing um, super fast. So these two things are kind of contradictory, but also, um, also it makes sense when you, when you think about them in unison. But to your question, um, as far as when that tipping point occurred, really the um, biggest single thing is, uh, is China emerging in the 1990s and 2000s when that process started, I mean, obviously it's a country with um, you know 1.4 billion people. A ton of those people were living uh, as as farmers, and they uh, their income level was in the the lower end of that spectrum. 
many of them in, in poverty, hundreds of millions, in fact. And the single biggest uh, driver of this entire trend is, um, is China emerging and starting to spread that wealth around uh, with those hundreds of millions of people. And obviously, this is something that's well documented and, and that has been covered a lot, but it's about you know, China opening up its, uh, its economy to, to having those, you know, having those regions that can, that can take investment and you know, building factories and industrializing and, and having jobs for those, those farmers to go to that pay better. And, uh, and then, yeah, once you add that all together uh, over that period of 10 to 20 years, um, it makes a huge impact in terms of uh, the amount of people in poverty. And just because China is so big, it really moves the needle. But, but that said, it's also a, um, that's like an extreme example of what's happening globally in other countries too, right? If you look at the other countries that are, you know, the world's, you know, factories or, or things like that, if you, places like um, Vietnam or, or some of these other um, countries that are developing and, and starting to move from uh, agricultural to more industrial economies, the same things are happening in those places as well. Yeah, and I guess my first thought as as an investor, I suppose, is to to kind of look at consumer behavior because I guess with the rising middle class, there's more disposable income available to certain people and families as a whole, and therefore they might might start buying different things or at least buying more things in general. Where are we where are we seeing that? You know, are we seeing increased spending in discretionary goods? Have you noticed anything there? And does does the book talk about that? Yeah, so I, again, I, I think um, China is a great example here um, because there's so many people that have income that they've never had before. Uh, they're obviously starting to make purchase decisions that they also haven't had to make before. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what's um, really interesting about it is, is that because there's less of a precedent of, of people having wealth in these places, um, you know, they, based on their culture and based on, um, based on you know, this time and place, mm-hmm. you know, they're choosing to put their money in probably different things than than we were um, than we would have done at the same time, right? And so, um, spending patterns are different. Um, they're, they're the same in some ways, right? I mean, people want to have a a car or a means of transportation, or people want to uh, buy nicer things. They want to um, eventually buy some sort of a luxury good. Um, so those things are are um, are the same, but the allocations towards them is, is not necessarily the same. And, and it depends on the place and it depends on the, the person involved. And that data is super interesting to look at as well. Yeah, massively so. Okay, so uh, we're coming towards the end of the session. So my penultimate question is about the movement between these kind of economic classes. Uh, it does seem to differ pretty wildly. I read that every second on average, only 0.5 people from the middle class graduate to the upper class, whereas when you compare that to the lower to middle class, it's actually five people that make that same graduation. So what's preventing uh, that, that transfer to the upper echelons of, of society and, and the economy? Yeah, this is a really great question. And I think it's something that um, is sort of the, the next thing that you need to look at in this entire uh, signal, which is, okay, we have a bunch of people moving out of poverty, which is obviously great, but you know, you're, they're still not middle-class in the way that we think of them or, or uh, in definitely in the global upper class. Um, so it's, it's worth thinking about how these things are defined firstly. So um, the global upper class, um, the way it's defined 
in the book and and when you talk or when you're um, looking at these different sources that cover this thing, they basically say earning about $110 a day um, is what puts you into the global upper class. So when you think of that in those terms, most people that are in the the middle class in the United States or in uh, the UK or or so on, they're considered global upper class in in, in this situation, right? So. Um, so how do we get people into what we consider middle class, right? That's really what we're asking. And, and when you think of it in those terms, I think you have to look at where they are right now. And so they've th- this big bubble of people that have moved out of poverty are, are now moving into the global middle class. That's not our middle class. These are people working in, in factories, people that are um, doing you know, non-knowledge work, and they're making money is more money than they've ever made before, but it's it's still not up to this this other standard. So, what does it take to get up into what we consider middle class? Well, a lot of time that means there has to be that uh, that knowledge work component to it. Um, you have to be able to create uh, much more value um, in a in like a leveraged way where you do something and it creates much more value than the input that you've put in. That's when someone can really pay you that amount of money, right? Um, and, um, and when you're, when you're just working in a, uh, factory or in some other type of commoditized type of work, for example, um, you know, as, a someone who is, you know, cleaning in China or they're, um, or maybe, maybe even a teacher, right. Uh, these things are, are not quite up to providing that, uh, that global middle class or sorry, global upper class, uh, level. So, yeah, I mean, obviously the the countries have to be richer as a whole. They have to have more wealth as a whole, but also they have to have more people in positions where they're able to, uh, to create that value and, and get that, uh, income. Uh, so yeah, it's just a math game, right? It's, um, it's easier to have people, um, to provide new jobs for people that are coming into factories and so on. It's harder to say, Hey, we need you to have a university degree or, or, or whatever that equivalent is. And you need to be coming up, making decisions and things that are adding a ton of value to society, right? That type of knowledge work is harder to just uh, flip a switch and have people do that. So I think that's really the, the next uh, step is, you know, you're starting to see more engineers, you're starting to see more, uh, more business people emerge out of these, uh, these different places. And, you know, those are the people that are going to be moving into that, um, that income class. Okay, well, I think that probably brings us to the end of the session. It's been really fantastic to talk to you. So um, to end, I suppose, you know, where, where can people get the book? I assume just on all sort of major online stores. Yeah, uh, yeah it's published through, uh, through Wiley and it's uh, available uh, through a number of different places. But obviously, something like Amazon is the easiest for most people. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll post that Amazon link in the episode description as well. And that just leaves me to say thank you very much uh, for joining us, Jeff. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.